A Brief Reign of Charles II, 1660 to 1685, Part 1. Quote, Charles Stuart, a long dark man about two yards high, end of quote, was the description of the King of England given to the advertisement for his capture published after the Battle of Worcester. Charles learned a lot from the dangers and the years of exile through which he'd passed. He was at ease in any type of society, distrusted all men, and delighted in the company of women, as you found out in the series I did with the mistresses. Bishop Burnett, who knew him well, describes him, quote, He had the art of making all people grow fond of him at first, by a softness in his whole way of conversation, as he was certainly the best-bred man of his age, end of quote. But although he was all things to all men, Charles had a mind of his own. On the surface, he was light-hearted and cynical. Beneath it, he was hard-working and relentless in his determination that he and his family should never again be forced from the throne. His restoration had been possible because Presbyterians, Anglicans, Republicans, and Royalists had dropped their differences and called back the king rather than risk anarchy or another military dictatorship. But the differences remained and the effects of the past 20 years could not be wiped out in a moment. Parliament was restored in 1660, as well as the king. And since the acts of which Charles I had given his assent remained in force, star chamber and ship money were gone for good. The restored king was to be dependent on Parliament for money, and on common law, of course, for punishing offenders. One of the first problems to be dealt with was that of providing the king with an income the royal lands and custom duties, would bring in about 500,000 pounds a year. But it was reckoned that Charles would need another 700,000 pounds if his government was to pay its way. The commons, for the first time, voted the king a regular income. But since they would have to do the paying, they were careful not to be too generous. In the fact, for the first 12 years of his reign, Charles's income fell far below the estimate, and he was constantly in debt. In 1660, the restoration, not only of king and parliament, but also of the Anglican Church. The Presbyterians hoped that in return for their help in bringing back the king, the Church of England would be reformed in such a way that they could accept it. Charles was in favor of toleration and summoned the conference at Savoy Palace, at which he hoped Presbyterians and Anglicans would be able to come to terms. But the conference was a failure, and although the prayer book was revived, there was no concessions to the Presbyterians. The Parliament was elected in 1661 was dominated by the triumphant Cavaliers, out for revenge on their old enemies. All parish priests were ordered not merely to use the Revire's prayer book, but to take an oath that they fully accepted everything it said. Over a thousand gave up their livings rather than conform. Further acts of Parliaments harried the nonconformists by forbidding them to hold services of their own. Church of England had finally abandoned the pretense that it was the church of all the English people. Roman Catholics, on the one hand, and nonconformists, on the other, were driven out of the church and were forbidden to teach or attend or universities or take part in town government. Nonconformists found holding services of their own that were arrested, particularly those belonging to a new sect, the Quakers, to whom over a thousand were in prison in 1662. The persecution of harmless men and women, whose only offense that they could not accept the Anglican prayer book, was a shameful business. But we owe it one of the most moving works in English literature, Pilgrim's Progress, which the nonconformist John Bunyan wrote during his years of imprisonment at Bedford Goal. The great days of Puritanism as a political force was over, 
In the first half of the 17th century, the Puritans, in their hatred of tyranny and their assertion that the individual conscience must be the final judge in spiritual matters, had seemed to be the defenders of English liberties. More than this, they had been apparently an irresistible force, the flood tide of the age, sweeping away the feeble backwaters that James and Charles constructed. But the critical years from 1640 to 1660 had shown up the falseness of this view. The first two Stuarts represented more than themselves. They stood for order and government, the control of church and state by institutions which had survived the test of time. They asserted that the alternatives to strong royal government were tyranny or anarchy, that an intolerant Anglican church would be replaced only by another form of intolerance. The interregnum had shown how right they were. The anarchy of the diggers and the levelers and the absolutism of the Lord Protector were the two poles between the revolutionary movement swung and the religious toleration which Cromwell had to defend against his parliaments was narrowly limited and hardly worthy of the name. The property owners had been Puritan in their sympathies during Charles I's reign because they resented the arbitrary taxation of an Arminian monarchy, and they saw in the administration of the royal council their own domination of local life. But the interregnum taught them how easily extremist revolutionaries take over when the barriers built up by time and custom are swept away. After 1660, the property owners accepted the Restoration monarchy as a guarantee of stability of social order upon which their power and position was actually based, especially as Charles II had neither the intention nor the means of continuing that close supervision of local life by the royal council, which had marked his father's reign. They accepted also the Church of England, which abandoned its attempt to impose Arminian pattern of worship upon all Englishmen, and by its insistence on obedience, the powers that are to be ordained of God, gave its blessing not only to the restored monarchy, but to the whole social order. The roles of the early 17th century were reversed after the Restoration. Parliament was now the ardent supporter of the Anglican Church for which Charles I had died. The king was an advocate of toleration. Religion was still a vital force, but it was no longer the controlling passion of which all activities, including politics, were merely an aspect. On the continent, the Thirty Years' War had ended in 1648 with one Catholic power, France, fighting and defeating the other, Spain. Catholics and Protestants, since they could not destroy each other, were forced to live together, and the desire for national glory came to replace religious intoleration as the driving force in international politics. In England, too, religion gradually became an instrument of social system, which had at one time dominated. Fear of Roman Catholics survived, particularly as they were associated with the popular imagination of the despotic Catholic monarchies of France and Spain. Nonconformists were also persecuted, and thousands died from imprisonment and ill treatment in Charles II's reign. But in both cases, the motives were increasingly political. The property owners in Parliament, now firmly allied to the Anglican Church, were determined to prevent any change in the social system coming either from Catholic absolutists or nonconformist Republicans. As they grew more secure in their position, they persecuted less. By the end of the century, nonconformists and Roman Catholics were allowed to worship as they wished although the controlling positions in society were still reserved for Anglicans. The Church of England preached the divine right of kings to rule and the duty of subjects to obey. These doctrines were very acceptable to Charles II, who believed, like his father, 
that kings are appointed by God to control the destinies of their people. But the fact that the Church of England was now warmly supported by Parliament made it less agreeable to the king. Confronted with an Anglican House of Commons protesting its loyalty and yet making demands on him which he found unacceptable, his sympathies moved gradually towards the Church of Rome, which seemed to provide the only sure defense to royal authority. Charles, who had promised toleration in the Declaration of Breda, tried to bring it about by suspending the operation of the penal laws in December of 1662. But when Parliament reassembled early in 1663, it forced him to abandon his attempt. In spite of selling Dunkirk to the French, he was already in debt, and his marriage to Catherine, the daughter of the King of Portugal, meant that he now had a queen and a larger court to maintain. He needed money, too, for the navy, since English merchantmen were already fighting their Dutch rivals off the coast of Africa, and war, war seemed certain. The diarist Samuel Pepys, who worked in the navy office, wrote that in India the Dutch were showing scorn to all the English, saying they will do what they list and be masters of all the world there, and have so proclaimed themselves sovereign of all the South Seas. Jealousy over trade led to open war with Holland in 1664. The English fleet was commanded jointly by James, the Duke of York, the king's brother, and General Monk, created the Duke of Abermall for his great work in bringing about the restoration. At first, everything went well, and in 1665, the Dutch were defeated, and their admiral killed in a three-day battle off Luzoft. But the strain of war, which even Cromwell had found too much for his finances, quickly exhausted the king's treasury. Parliamentary grants were, as usual, inadequate, and the royal administration was full of corrupt officials who kept for themselves money that should have been used in building and equipping ships. By the beginning of 1667, both sides were negotiating for peace, and Charles ordered the fleet to be laid up to save the expense of keeping it at sea. Unfortunately, he acted too soon. In June of that year, the Dutch sailed up the Medway River, burnt several English warships while they lay at anchor, and towed away the flagship, the Royal Charles. The honeymoon period was now over. And we'll pick up there next time. Now the sources for this, The History of England by Thornton, Lockyer, and Smith, and several books that I have on Charles II, as well as the Dutch Wars. So I hope you enjoyed that, and as always, don't forget to come by the website, sumahistorica.com or historyaccordingtobob.com, and ask a question, leave a comment, check out our merchandise, and if you like what we're doing, please feel free to support us. Thank you very much.